Go ahead, take out your Bibles, open up to Acts chapter 6. And as you're turning there, I just want to say one quick word. I think you caught it from Censor, but God's doing some really incredible stuff in this community, and I really want to invite you into that. Um, just, I've been watching from the last number of months, God kind of answering prayers and the Holy Spirit stirring in and amidst people. And I know Sincer uh, just mentioned it, but I, really, I want to just second what Sincer said. That pre-service prayer at 8.15 that takes place in that back hallway over there is vital for this church. Many of you have already joined, and like Sincer said, one, one of the folks who joins that regularly said, I see a vision that over 100 people would be here at 8.15 every Sunday to pray. I've spoken on this regularly. It's a growing crowd, and I really want to invite that you into that. If, if that feels really uncomfortable to you, like, I'm going to be part of the team that prays before church service, that's totally great. Just come and sit for a number of, you don't even have to pray out loud or anything like that. Just be a part of it. And I really believe what happens is once you step into that place of being there and praying over the service, the Sunday morning almost takes on a whole new feel. When you've been the one praying over it, when you've been here early, like asking, God, would you move powerfully? And then you come into the sanctuary and you begin worshiping with people. It's a whole different thing. The, the Spirit works in a whole other way. And so wherever you are, I just want to invite you into that. It's a very powerful time. So let me pray one more time. We're going to dig into Acts chapter 6. Heavenly Father, as I open up your word right now, we thank you. We love you. We cherish your word. We want to know every sentence, every letter of your word. We want to parse it all perfectly and understand it because as we know your word, we know you with greater clarity. And so would you work right now in the name of Jesus Christ, move throughout this place, bring conviction where conviction is needed, and may you get all the glory. In Jesus' holy name, amen. I love evangelism. I love going out, sharing the gospel with people. And, and one of the things I regularly hear from folks when I go out sharing about Jesus Christ with folks is that they love Jesus Christ or at least they think they love Jesus Christ. They love a version of Jesus that they've told themselves who Jesus is. But they don't really love the whole organized religion piece of it. They, they love the concept of a character named Jesus, but they don't like the whole do it in a group setting. They don't like the budgets. They don't like the organization. They don't like the, the buildings. They'd rather just do Christianity all on their own. They're more spiritual than they are those who uh, are truly determined to follow Jesus and all of his teachings. I hear this all the time, very regularly. And frankly, I think sometimes that idea can seep into many Christians' lives, even those that are part of the church regularly. Like, do I really need this body? Do I really need this community? Isn't it almost easier to just have my relationship with Jesus and do that on my own? I call that Lone Ranger Christianity. And I just want to say right at the front of this message today that I believe one of the greatest threats to your spiritual health would be Lone Ranger Christianity. So if you're watching online and you've never been a part of a church, you've never been deeply plugged into a community, here's what I want you to know. One of the things that will be the greatest threat to spiritual growth in your life is attempting to go about your Christian faith solo. You won't find it in the Bible. You never find Lone Ranger Christians in the Bible. You always find them in community with each other. Lone Ranger Christianity is a great error for the reason that God has structured his church with specific leadership. 
He's given us all these instructions of exactly what his church ought to look like. He's given us guidance. He's told us what the different offices in the church should be. He's given us all the structure that we need. And in fact, as I love how Kenson says this so often, Kenson, the other person who preaches from this pulpit very regularly, what he oftentimes says is for us to look at the church, the actual organization, and to say we don't, we don't like you, but we like Jesus, is kind of like looking at a husband and saying, we like you, but we don't like your bride. <laughs> we think she's pretty terrible. Well, that would be an insult to the husband. And the Bible says that the church is the bride of Christ. And so to say you don't like the church is to really not like the bride of Christ, which is a pretty terrible thing to say to Jesus. My question to you is this. In your heart of hearts, I know you're in here today, so there's an element of your faith that certainly is not Lone Ranger Christianity. You're here, and I'm glad you're here. And for those of you that are joining online and wish you were here, I'm speaking to you, you're included in that, okay? However, are you truly committed to your church family? I mean that, like, really deep. Think of, we use the word family in this church all the time to describe what we are. We're a family. Now, I want you to think about your family, okay? And I want you to think about the commitment level you have to the people in your family. Are you committed to your church family the way we ought to be committed to our earthly biological family. You know, one of the things that happens in earthly biological families is that when things get hard, you don't flee, right? That's one of the defining characteristics of a healthy uh, earthly biological family, at least, is that when you hit roadblocks, when you hit stumbling blocks, when things are hard, when you're disagreeing on ideas, on ideology, biological family, what a healthy family should do is they say, they look at each other and they say, I have a deep love for you and we're working through this conflict together. Are you in to this family the way you ought to be into a healthy biological family? See, I think what happens is when you're not committed, when you have an, a, a sense of Lone Ranger Christianity inside of your own heart and you come into a church like this, what happens is you realize over a period of time that the church is not perfect. Actually, the deeper you get into the church, the more you realize that everyone involved is sinful, messy people. And there's all this sinful, messy stuff that happens behind the scenes in real relationships that take place. And the deeper you get into a church family, the more brokenness you see in the lives and the hearts of all the people involved in the church— if you have one foot out the door because you kind of have this lone ranger aspect about you, the second you see beneath and you really get a sense for, oh, they're broken people, then it's very easy to leave. But if you determine in your heart to love the church because God loves the church and he's not leaving the church despite the fact that we're messy, broken people, and you're going to see it through, there's power in that. There's strength in a church like that. We're returning in our study to the book of Acts. Last week, we took a week to focus in on Easter. We looked at Luke 24 and the resurrection stories, and we're going back to Acts. Now, let's just recap where we are. Acts, we're at starting Acts chapter 6. At Pentecost was the moment when the Holy Spirit, after Jesus had ascended on high at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit flooded down on the New Testament church. And largely what we've seen in Acts 1 through the end of 5 so far is the, is the Holy Spirit working in Jerusalem, that's the geography we're largely working with so far, among Jewish believers. Remember, when, when Christianity was birthed, it was birthed out of Judaism, and it was really kind of a sect of Judaism. It was right around the temple. They were still gathering around the temple at times, and there were very Jewish people who had accepted Jesus as their Messiah. Later on in Acts, 
the gospel is going to go to all the nations, and Gentiles, non-Jews, are going to be welcomed in. But so far, we're very much still in the early, very Jewishly culture, Jewishly, if that's a word, Jewish cultural parts of this story. And we've seen highlights, but we've also seen some strong difficulties they've gone through, right? Think of Ananias and Sapphira whose lives were taken from them for lying about how much they were giving to the church and keeping back from some for themselves. Think about Peter and John being thrown in prison and threatened with more persecution if they didn't stop preaching the gospel. They've got threats from without, meaning threats coming from outside the church, and threats from within. And all the while, Satan's working behind the scenes trying to tear them down. I think I shared this a while ago in one of the first sermons. It bears repeating at this point. If you really want to study the book of Acts, you have to read the book of Acts and the book of Revelation simultaneously. Okay? The book of Acts tells the story of the first 30 years of the church through an earthly lens. Here's the events that took place. The book of Revelation largely tells the story of those first 30 years through a spiritual lens and shows you the spiritual warfare that was being waged on the church, that Satan was always behind the scenes waging warfare on God's people. Now, today what we're going to see is we're going to see another conflict, and we're going to see how the church addressed conflict that came up in the, in, within the walls. What do they do? Do they flee or do they act like a family, find a solution, and move forward? So three parts today. I want to understand what is the conflict in these few short passages, what's the solution they come up with, and then what's the effect of them laboring together as a family? Conflict, solution, effect, okay? Let's start with the conflict. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. We read this. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Pause. All right? We're only covering about six or seven verses today. So first verse tells us the conflict. Let's dig in. The first thing we notice in this story is that it begins with the reality that the early church community was growing. Okay? So there's disciples being added to their number every day. Remember what I was telling you. Christianity started in Jerusalem as a sect of Judaism. And the Jews at the time were meeting in all these different synagogues throughout the area. They gather at the large temple in Jerusalem from time to time. And all of a sudden, many of these different Jews were putting their faith in Jesus, and that group was growing. And we see this tension between the Jews in Jerusalem and the Jews who believed Jesus was their Messiah, the early Christians in Jerusalem. They're kind of coming into conflict with each other. But this group of Christians is beginning to grow to the, to the thousands just think, in this small community, this, this city in Jerusalem, this group is growing and growing. Now, here's something we know about any organization. When an organization starts small and then begins to grow, you hit growing pains. doesn't matter what organization you are, if you're a business or you're the church, as things grow, you have new hurdles, you have new structural problems, systems problems. The things that worked when you were a group of 100 people now when you're 10,000, you need new systems. You need new leadership. You need a different structure to oversee all the different things that need to get. How are you going to communicate things to get out? It used to be you just gathered in a room and someone stood up and said it and then everybody knew. Now you've got 10,000 people who are spread out across a pretty large geographic map. You're going to need some better systems in place. Things are growing and they're beginning to get to some of those structural problems of an organization that's growing. And a complaint arises from the Hellenists against the Hebrews. Do you see that in verse 1? Very important detail in this passage. 
The first question is, who are these two groups? Now, the Hellenists, the Hellenists, that essentially means the Greek-speaking Jews, okay? So, here's background for you. The context is we're in Jerusalem. However, Judaism, because of what was called the diaspora, the diaspora, had, Jews had been spread out over the entire Roman Empire, right? Because of persecution through the hundred years leading up to Christ, Judaism was not just in Israel at the time, but there were Jews spread out all around the known empire. And many of the Jews who had been living around the known empire at the time, not in Jerusalem, had become Hellenized. They had taken on a lot of Greek culture. They, they actually spoke Greek. The early New Testament manuscripts are written in Greek. They're not written in Hebrew of the New Testament. They're written in Greek because they were living in Greco-Roman culture. And so you have Jews spread out around the, the globe at the time who were very Greek-Roman in their culture. Those are the Hellenist Jews who find themselves in Jerusalem in this church. And then you've got these Hebrew Jews. They're kind of from Jerusalem. They're steeped in Hebrew culture. This is a clash of cultures. Now notice, they're all Jews, right? They all come from the same religious background. They all have this new identity in Jesus. And yet, despite the fact that they all have this strong identity, there is this cultural clash between the two of them. Now, this is what's very important. Within the world of Judaism, not in Christianity, but if you were to just look at Judaism in the first century around Jerusalem, this ethnic clash was very real. The Hebrews oftentimes would look down their nose at the, at the Hellenist Jews. They would say, oh, you're not really pure-blooded in a sense. They, they would say, oh, you've adopted too much of earthly ways. You speak Greek, not Hebrew. And they actually had different synagogues. So they had synagogues where the Hebrews would go, and then they'd have synagogues where the Hellenist Jews would go. And they were separated. And into that world of Jerusalem at the time comes this New Testament church, united around Christ. And as we saw in Acts chapter 2, from the very beginning, do you remember when I put the map up here? From the very beginning in Acts chapter 2, we saw that the moment the Holy Spirit came on the church, it was pulling Jews from all over the Roman world at the time, literally from the extent of the entire Roman Empire, all coming together in this fantastic multi-ethnic church. And one of the unique contributions of the church at the time was that they were learning how to do life together rather than separated. Now they're doing life together. And this issue arises. Now, let's focus on this for just a second. One of the most powerful insights of the New Testament church, and I'll get to this a little bit later on, but one of the strongest influences the early New Testament church had on culture at the time is that they figured out how to do multi-ethnic community better than anybody else around them had ever figured it out. They truly did it. They truly loved each other. They lived this thing out, and they did it boldly and unabashedly in the face of a culture around them that could not figure this out. Now, this issue comes up where we're told in verse 1, a complaint by the Hellenists, that's the Greek-speaking Jews, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Let me read to you from Daryl Bach, who's a commentator. He says this, The way the problem is eventually solved, we're going to get to this, indicates that it, the problem, may well have surfaced not because of ethnic malice, but because of growth across diverse ethnic lines. 
The community is aware, however, that such distinctions cannot be maintained and supported in a community that confesses a Messiah who has come to give God's grace to all types of people. What's that quote saying? What's the core issue that's taking place here? Is this early New Testament church bringing into the walls of the church some of that ethnocentrism that the early Jewish community had where the Hebrews were looking down their noses at the Hellenists? Possibly. Possibly that's something that's happening here. But it seems like that's actually not the case. Here's why. Because if racism and ethnocentrism were the issue in this passage, the correct solution would be church discipline. Whoever were the perpetrators would be excommunicated from the church because racism has absolutely no place in the church. That's, it's not a thing. That would not, if that were to take place in the church, you'd be excommunicated and we'd have to solve the problem that way. But the solution they find is not excommunication, but a leadership shift. And what that indicates that what was happening is as this church community is growing in unit and they're trying to figure out how we do life and it's a larger group than it was before, there are true language and cultural barriers that are difficult to figure out how to implement these systems through. How do you implement a, a food distribution system to widows across different languages? That's hard when you don't have an easily centralized command center. What's the conflict? The complaint is that in the, in the daily distribution, which was both of food and money, by the way, the Greek-speaking Jews were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, we know from historical records that the Jews had two different weekly distributions in Jerusalem. The first one was a weekly distribution of money. It was basically a weekly dole that gave Jews enough to buy 14 meals, 14 meals for widows in the area. So if you needed help, you could get some money from your local synagogue for 14 meals for the following two weeks, and then come back and get another uh, set of money. They took care of their people. And then there was also a daily distribution of food. If you were a widow and you were in trouble, then you could come to the synagogues and get food. It looks like the early New Testament church had adopted some of those historic practices. Now, let me just say a very important word here. God's people have always cared for the most vulnerable among them. It's one of their shining characteristics and qualities. And we as a church have to regularly be asking ourselves, are we living up to the standard we see of the early New Testament church? Widows in that day were among the most vulnerable people in all of society. Why? Well, for one, women barely had a voice in society at that time. They didn't have much power or authority at all. They were dependent on their husband for money, for income, for defense, and so if the husband was taken out of a household, a woman was all on her own, essentially without the ability to make an income. That's a very dangerous place to be, especially considering they didn't really have police the way we do now, where if you wanted to voice a concern or someone that did something bad to you, it wasn't the same situation. And so the church community stepped in, and they said, oh, there's someone in trouble. We take care of them. The, the most often... Uh, the, the people, the, the groups that are most often brought up in the Bible that the church consistently cared for were the poor, the widows, and the orphans. Over and over again. And immigrants. Poor, widow, orphan, immigrants. The most vulnerable among us, the church steps in and cares for. This work is not optional for the church. Now let me make this more, more specific for you. Sometimes when I say a line like that, this work is not optional for the church, what you hear is, my church is going to take care of that. The organization I belong to is going to take care of that. No, 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 no. This work is not optional for a Christian because Christians together are the church. 
Is your life marked by a consistent and deep concern for the most vulnerable among you? If not, then don't expect your church to be because you are your church. Do you get that? If you want to see your church living this out, it starts with you living this out. That's the problem. Now let's examine the solution they get to. Starting in verse 2. The twelve, that's the twelve apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and they said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Okay, so we have a problem. The Hellenist widows are not getting food, and the apostles find a solution. They figure this out, and they move forward. Notice how the disciples summon the entire church. This is an every-member problem. When there's a problem like this that arises, it's the whole body that comes together to figure this out. Why? Well, because the church is a body. If one member hurts, the whole member hurts. If one member celebrates, the whole member celebrates. I've had back pain for the last two weeks, okay? When your back hurts, everything hurts. You can't get comfortable, right? If one person hurts, everybody hurts. You can't get comfortable knowing that something's going on within your church family. In the, next, in the text, we see two specific ministries within the church. This is very interesting. The apostles essentially say there's two core things this church needs to do, and we need to prioritize both in specific, systematic ways. In verse 2, we see the ministry of the table. Let me read it to you again. The twelve summoned the full number of disciples, said it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. The actual, that's a translation. The language there is for the ministry of the table, for the ministry of the table. And then we also see the ministry of the word. That's in verse four. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Two specific parts of a New Testament church. You've got the ministry of the table. What is that? Making sure that the most vulnerable among us are completely taken care of. No one goes without when it comes to the people of God. And then you've got the ministry of the word, the, the proclamation of, what, of God's word, the teaching of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The apostles essentially say this. We need to solve this problem. This is a priority for us. But it cannot be us that becomes the solution to that problem, the apostles. There is great leadership among the body that can step into this need and solve the problem probably better than we can, say the apostles. They say it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, that's not condescending towards the ministry of the table. They're not saying, oh, that's small-time work and this is big-time work over here. They're just saying this is different leadership that is needed, and there are specific giftings that are needed here and specific giftings that are needed there. How do I know it's not condescending? Because what's the first thing they do? They take seven strong leaders from the church community and place them over leadership of the distribution of food and money to the widows. So it needs real leadership. 
They just say there's some who are gifted for this work, and there's some who are gifted for this work. And the apostles have a priority for themselves of prioritizing the faithful preaching of God's Word. Nothing would get between them and the preaching of God's Word as the central backbone of the community of the church. Look at verse 4 again. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. When we talk about the ministry of the Word, we're speaking about the preaching of God's gospel. That Jesus Christ came, died for our sins, took our sins upon the cross. That His blood was shed, that we could have the forgiveness of sins. Because if blood is not shed, there is no forgiveness of sins. Week in, week out, these apostles were committed to praying and faithfully declaring that message. That there is salvation in no other name but Jesus Christ. And until you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are cut off from God eternally. But once you place your faith in Christ, there's full forgiveness for all sin, and you're declared a son and daughter of the King. Amen? That's the weekly proclamation of the Word. A number of years ago, I was in a meeting with a number of younger pastors like myself, and we were meeting with a more senior pastor. And one of the younger pastors, he was talking about all the challenges that he had as a young pastor, all the busy things he had to keep himself busy with. And he made a comment like this, and this was one of the, to be honest with you, one of the best preachers I knew in terms of young, young pastors that I'm aware of. And he said, you know, sometimes I just get so overwhelmed during the week. I mean, there's just stuff coming from every direction, and literally I don't have time to plan a sermon. And I'm just always amazed. This is what the young pastor said. He said, I'm always amazed when I just get up there, I open up the Bible, and I start talking how the Holy Spirit just works and does amazing things in that moment. And the senior pastor essentially took a big breath and then scolded the young pastor. And he said, don't ever do that again. And we all took a big breath, and he said, the primary work God has assigned you to do is to study God's Word, to prepare sermons, and to communicate them faithfully to your people. Do not neglect that work for other work. The work that pastors are called to is very important. I need you to understand this. It's not... I don't want to prioritize in a way that the Bible doesn't prioritize it, but the apostles knew they had to dedicate and devote their time to this because this is an easy one to get really wishy-washy on. And if, you're not, if, if pastors suddenly slip into not faithfully exegeting God's Word and preaching it with clarity, there's trouble for the entire church. The church is not just a social justice warrior movement. At the center of it is the faithful preaching of God's Word. That's why pastors are trained in the original languages. And when I study each week, I want you to know what happens behind the scenes. When I'm preparing messages, I'm doing translation work. I'm getting down into this so I can faithfully understand all the nuances and what are the controversies with the passage and then how do I communicate that properly. This work cannot be set aside. It's part of the central backbone of what we do of a community. Further, within the community are all sorts of gifts. Look, the work God has assigned me to do is what I'm doing right now. You don't want me overseeing the finances. <laughs> that would not be a good use of my time. You don't want that. You want somebody from within the church body who has faithfully skill sets within finance so they can oversee that area of the ministry. You don't want me overseeing all of the counseling. I do a lot of counseling as a pastor, but there are people who are far more gifted at counseling than I am 
And we know need those people with incredible counseling skills to be raised up and to step into leadership to care for people in that way. See, this is what the body is. We all have assigned roles. Do you know your role, and are you using your gifts to bless this church? If you don't know your role, begin getting plugged in and just invest in the church. That's what you do. Don't wait till you, you invest all your skill and time into the church. See where God blesses you when you pour out into the church, and then you begin to hone in on it. Now, let me walk through what I believe are three threats facing the modern church. Three threats right out of this passage. Number one, I think many churches fall into one of these three threats. Number one, many pastors become so overwhelmed with all the, the growing needs of their local church, and they, that and they, they focus all their time on the ministry of the table. As a church grows, there's many important needs throughout the week that need to get tended to. You name it, there's needs. There's administration needs. People have needs. There's meetings. There's weddings. There's baptisms. There's a thousand things that have to get done throughout a week in a large growing church. And oftentimes what will happen is that pastors don't realize how to delegate and don't know how to delegate. And so the gifts of the body get robbed and the pastor gets overwhelmed with all the work of the church. And I just want to confess to you, I've done that in the past. I've done that where I've tried to hog all the work, not realizing that's what I was doing. And the last number of years, one of the things the Lord has deeply put on my heart is to keep pouring out the needs of the church to you in order for you to step in. Now, it, two things can cause this error. Number one can be pastors who don't release work to the body. And number two can be congregations who don't step into real leadership that is needed. Both are needed. We need you to step in. This is further threatened, this particular need is further threatened by what, what is oftentimes called the seeker-friendly church movement. What is the seeker-friendly church movement? A seeker-friendly church is a church that has made it their commitment to be as entertaining as possible. So they have all the lights, they have all the fog, they have all the, everything you would expect if you were to go to a Rolling Stones concert. And they're, they're trying to make this as entertaining as possible because that's how they think they can reach the most amount of people is if they can compete with the United Center on the concert, then they're going to actually attract more people. But when you do that, all of a sudden the pastors become CEOs of businesses and that's why the seeker-friendly church model is not in alignment with God's Word. We don't need church services to be entertainment. We need them to be honoring to God's Word and the faithful preaching of God's Word consistently and with clarity. Threat number two, the church forgets that the ministry of the table needs real leadership. There are many, many areas of real vulnerability among God's people and within our city that need all of you to step in and offer real leadership towards. I love this quote from John Stott. He says this, We cannot proclaim the gospel of God's love with any degree of integrity if we don't exhibit it in our love for others. Notice how he's talking about integrity here. Nothing is so damaging to the cause of Christ as a church that is torn apart by jealousy, rivalry, slander, and malice, or preoccupied with our own concerns. See, if we're so focused on our own concerns and we don't realize the vulnerability of people around us and the challenges they're going through, and we don't actually get out of our own little world and step into other people's brokenness and lead the ministry of the table... That's the mercy ministries of the church that care for the vulnerable. If we don't step into those places, we're forgetting what used to be a central component of the early New Testament church. 
Let me tell you a couple places that are incredible. Uh, we have a ministry called Bread of Life. Drew and Allie, I've spoken about you guys regularly in the, the work that they are doing. They go downtown to the Thompson Center, and they have an entire ministry that those two are leading with a whole pe- group around them, caring for the homeless in our community. And once a month, they go down, downtown, they're partnered with a number of other churches, and they bring care and prayer and conversation and goods and food and socks and clothes, all the things that the homeless around us need. We're in an area where there's a lot of homelessness, and those are real needs. And can I just tell you, if you're hearing this service and you're like, you know, I should be stepping into a table ministry, step in there. They, I was just talking to them last week. They need more people on their team serving once a month. Can we do that? Can we do that? Yeah, we can. I know you can, okay? Step in, bread of life. You can find all the information online. We have an adoption ministry. My wife, Sarah, in the back back there in the green shirt, I love that woman very much so. She leads our adoption ministry, caring for the most vulnerable among us, orphans, making sure that they find homes. We are seeing adoptions all across this church because of our adoption ministry. We're beginning an abortion ministry, and I need more leadership. Just, I'm just telling you right need. Now, I need at least three more people to help step into leadership of this. We're going to be providing care for women with unplanned pregnancy, holistic care from housing to education to care for their children to adoption services if they need. I need leadership on that. Help me. Email me if you can't figure out how to get into any of these. It's all online, but I need your help. You see what I'm doing right now? I'm telling you what the needs are. And if we're going to be a faithful church that lives out this passage, I need everyone to jump in. We've got an incredibly talented body in this church. Let's serve the most vulnerable among us. Threat number three, the church becomes simply a table ministry organization. This threat is the most common among us, and I'm seeing it take place among many churches that I once thought were very faithful churches. What is the table ministry? It's a very important ministry of the church. It's the mercy ministry. It's stepping into vulnerableness and brokenness around you. That is part of what a church does. But the church is more than a table ministry. Notice the apostles said, we will dedicate ourselves to what? Prayer and the preaching of God's word. When churches begin to become simply social justice movements, they fail to be churches. In fact, I don't even like to use the word social justice. I use the term biblical justice to make sure we're communicating what justice is. Justice is written in the Bible. There's an important ministry of table ministry stepping into brokenness. But when churches forsake the faithful preaching of God's word and building their their entire church off of what does the Bible say, how do we teach this with clarity, then they're no longer a church. They're an organization perhaps committed to a good deed, but they're no longer a church. They must prioritize the Word of God in the center of it. In our modern day of the great social justice movements, many are in danger of this, and many churches have already slipped over the edge, unfortunately. Now, there's something very interesting that takes place in this verse. Verses 4 to 6, they they nominate seven men. The first one they lift is someone that's described as full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Here's a question for you. Would others around you describe you as full of the Spirit and wisdom? If you want leadership in the church, you need to be that person. You need to strive for it. You need to wake up every day. You need to lean into Jesus Christ. You need to become that person so that when needs arise, we tap you on the shoulder and say, will you lead? 
They choose seven men to step into this place. And notice, these names are very interesting. This is the little catch. You might not catch just reading it right out of the gate. All seven have something in common. They're Hellenist names. They chose seven men from among the Hellenist community within the church to step in and solve the problem. Not only could they have helped with the language barriers, but those who were being neglected would see their own in leadership and know that there was voices for them on the other side. They were going to be cared for. Now, this early New Testament church could have made a decision at this point. They could have fragmented along ethnic lines, couldn't they? The Hellenists and the Hebrews are having this clash. The widows aren't being met. And they could have made a decision. This would be a whole lot easier. I mean, look at these language culture barriers. Wouldn't this just be easier to kind of have a crew over here and a crew over here and do it our own way? Sound a little familiar? Wouldn't it just be easier to do it our own way? But notice what they do. They prioritize this clash that's happening and this disagreement. The apostles find out about it. They immediately gather the entire church they bring it the needs. They come up with a solution. The entire church, Hellenists and Hebrews, say that's a good solution. They implement it with solid leadership, and then they continue forward as a united church. Isn't that amazing? It's fairly quick how this happens. It's seven verses. There's a real conflict between two different cultural groups, and the church finds their greatest identity in Jesus Christ. They solve it and continue moving forward, laboring after the work God's given them. This is very important for us to hear. Problem, solution, and effect, the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Author Tim Keller, who many of you know, wrote a wonderful article recently. And he highlighted, he was summarizing a, a book called Destroyer of the Gods uh, by uh, author Larry Hurtado, who's a historian writing about how Christianity overcame the Roman Empire and the Roman uh, all the Gods in the Roman Empire. Great book. And, and Tim Keller summarizes five key distinguishing markers of the New Testament church. Let me read these to you. And, and I'm paraphrasing my own words. So these are my words summarizing Tim Keller's words, okay? Number one, the early New Testament church was radically committed to forgiveness and reconciliation. We see that in this passage. Forgiveness and reconciliation in the name of Jesus Christ. Number two, they were radically committed to a, a, to a holy sexual ethic. No sex outside of marriage. Number three, they were radically committed to an anti-abortion anti stance. We've covered that in depth in this church. Number four, they were radically committed to caring for the poor. We see that in this passage, don't we? And number five, ready? They were radically committed to being a healthy multi-ethnic church. Those five things set them apart as a community. And look at this interesting verse here, the very end. It says in verse 7, the word of God continued to increase, the number of the disciples multiplied greatly, and listen to this, a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Isn't that interesting? They're committed to this different way of doing things. Here are these people in, in, in the Jewish synagogues in Jerusalem. They had the Hellenist synagogues and the Hebrew synagogues, and, and they did their own thing. And then the Christians step in, and they all come together. They find their highest identity in Jesus Christ. When there's conflict, they find solution, and they move forward, and they seem to be a family. And the two different sides look in, and all of a sudden, all the priests go, 
that seems to work pretty good. Striving after being a healthy, multi-ethnic church is a huge value of what we do, especially here in the South Loop, where this is a very multi-ethnic community. We're in the center of downtown Chicago, right? What we do here is not accidental. We're pursuing this thing. Why? It's straight out of the Scriptures. But notice the principles in play. Our highest identity is in Jesus Christ. When conflict inside the church arises, we put leadership into it immediately. We solve it and we strive together, offering forgiveness and reconciliation and striving after the mission God's given us. Isn't that amazing? That is not to belittle the problems that face us as a church, but it is to say that there's real solutions that together when our identity is in Christ, primarily we find those fairly quickly. They were brothers and sisters, family, committed to each other. And when things got hard and they hit real roadblocks that needed real solutions and real prayer, they didn't flee, they invested. And the church moved forward and the church grew. This kind of Holy Spirit-filled unity drives gospel growth. Drives gospel growth. Lone Ranger Christianity will not drive gospel growth. It's the church. It's the bride of Christ. Now, let me close with something very important here. Ooh, I'm running long. Okay, let me close with something very important. Uh, This passage is oftentimes used to talk about the beginning of what we call our deacon ministry, Acts chapter 6. I actually think that's a misnomer. One of the reasons this passage is used to describe the deacon ministry is because the term deacon is used a handful of times. The word deacon just means servant. Diakonos means to serve in the, in the verb form, or in the noun form, diakonion, diakonion uh, is just a, a service, the service of the table, the service of the word. But it's not actually describing a formal ministry. I think what happened in church history is this became kind of the principal way of, of eventually, once the church got really organized, forming the deacon ministry. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, a later book in the Bible, one of the last books that was written, uh, they have a formal ministry called the deacon ministry. And we have a deacon ministry at this church. If you can put the slide up of all of our deacons in this church, here are those who are serving as deacons in this church. And I know it's hard to see this on the projector here with the lighting, uh, but here you can see our deacons that serve faithfully here in this community. And what are they? Deacons are set apart ministers of the word to care for and step into brokenness and care and prayer for the needs in the community. Each of them oversee a variety of different ministries in this church, and they serve. Again, the word deacon means to serve. They're stepping in and caring. Oftentimes what will happen is a need arises in the church. Someone will reach out to me and say, man, I'm really struggling with this. I'll meet with them first. I'll care for them. I'll send them in the right direction. And then I'll bring a deacon alongside them who can offer additional care and prayer and kind of sustained walking with them through a season. Our deacons are discipling people. Our deacons are leading ministries. As an example, Miss Rosa, who has not been able to attend church. Miss Rosa, I know you're watching right now. We love you. Miss Rosa, who's not been able to attend for a while, she usually shows up every week at 6 a.m. to set up the coffee and the table, and she literally oversees the table ministry in the back of it, in the front of the church every Sunday. She's overseeing that, caring and praying with people after service as well. These are our deacons. I want you to know they exist. We do this very intentionally, and it's a very important part of our ministry. 
After service today, our deacons are always available at the front after a sermon to come and pray with you because we know after the faithful preaching of God's Word, the Holy Spirit tends to move in a way that the right way to respond is to pray with somebody, and the deacons are available for that. Church, we need to strive to be a healthy body that when we hit conflict, we labor together in unity. Amen? Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we love you. We love your word. Thank you for the clarity of your word. Help us to take what we've learned today and apply it in a way that's biblical, helpful, and healthy. May you get all the glory. Put all of us in the background. May this be an every member ministry where we're all jumping in and striving after the great commandment, the great commission of making Jesus known among the nations. We pray for your Holy Spirit help. In Jesus' name, amen.